I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 50. Holy crap, 50? Damn. Dawn's Big Date. (laughs) DBD, as I like to call it. Famously. (laughs) Famously. (laughs) Emily, you curling up a little DBD this weekend? Ew, that sounds weird. But yes, DBD. Sounds kind of dirty. (laughs) I was going to say, did you just skip over the number when you were reading it, Emily? So it didn't jump out to you that it, we're already at book 50? No, it just seems like a lot of episodes to have done. Yeah. So like, did we, have we really read 50, more than 50 books? More than 50 books. Damn. No wonder I'm behind in my Goodreads challenge. <laughs> <laughs> you don't count all of your Babysitter's Club books? Seems like you would be ahead. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> no. I feel like these are the only books I read these days. <laughs> okay, so let's get into our one sentence summaries. This book was pretty bleak. Uh, it's dark in some places, huh? It's it's very strange. It's yeah. very strange. Okay, so one sentence summaries. I will go first. Mine is don't take dating advice from early 90s teen magazines. Yeah, oh, that's a good that's a good summary. Um, that dovetails nicely into mine, which is Dawn follows terrible teen mag dating advice while the BSC are asked to engage in fat phobic abuse of a seven-year-old. Hmm. Yeah. Mine is Dawn doesn't know what cool is and a fat kid try, pretends to be diabetic to lose weight. <laughs> so dark. <laughs> yeah, that was very dark. That really stood out yeah. to me. Yeah. Like, What? Yeah. Is this, this book yeah. is ghostwritten, right? Yes. Okay. It's okay. a new ghostwriter, Suzanne Wayne. We haven't had her before. Yeah. This is her debut. Her writing style is interesting. Yeah. Oh man, so much to say. Uh, you guys, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. And I'm Manny Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with the sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Also, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. And we have quite... A few new patrons to add to our Patreon family. So thank you, Amanda Morris, Tracy Dunstan, Amy Gibbs, Caitlin Jacobson, and Sarah. Thank you. It's a toast to all of you. Amazing. Tracy Dunstan. You know, is that the same as like, remember that movie Dunstan Checks In? Yes, I'm sure. She's related. Is that the same spelling? D-U-N-S-T-A-N. I, I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see the monkey movie Dunstan checks in. Mm-hmm. 
It's good. It's probably I was, recently watched the trailer for that weirdly. What? Matt, Matt was talking about it and I had never heard of it. So we it's watched in the, the trailer. zeitgeist. Johnston checks yeah. in. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So <laughs> should we do a quick summary? Oh, hold on. Hold, hold up. Can confirm different spelling. Okay. How do you spell it? It has an O and our, our lovely patron has an A. Okay. Thank you to our researcher, Esme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the line. <laughs> Um, for some reason neither Anne nor I can use a computer and podcast at the same time yeah (laughs) it's too hard I have to reach a little too far it's a lot yeah (laughs) should we do a quick summary of this book I think we should not talk about this book and talk about something else instead (laughs) oh but there's so much to talk about this is a classic stuck in Stony Brook book I mean we got a lot to say today right yeah okay so Dawn's like uh, man, why do all my friends have boys that they're interested in and I do not? And her New Year's resolution is to make herself more appealing to boys. Well, it's to get a boyfriend specifically. I, I think the, the, the goal is to get a boyfriend and the means is to make herself more appealing. Yes. I, I think she yeah. mixes up her means and ends, but, mm-hmm. um, and then, uh, Logan's cousin Lewis is coming to, to visit and so Don's like, oh, fuck, I guess I better get hot ASAP. Uh, <laughs> and then she's all weird when he gets there and her and Marianne fight because Marianne's trying to help her. But is she like, I don't know, <laughs> sabotage, saboteur. Um, and then they have a dumb fight. And then Don's like, you know what? I'm going to just be myself. And then he's like, wow, auga, hard eyes, hard eyes. And then they make out on the street. That's that's the A plot. <laughs> and why don't you tell us a little bit about the B plot? <laughs> you didn't um, like it. Did you not like it? Why are you laughing? <laughs> no, it's very good. I just want to hear Anne describe the ballad of Enormous Hill. Uh, so there's a new there's new babysitting clients. Um, the Hills who are they it's recommended to them from Charlotte Johansson's mom. Um, so funny enough, the dad's name is Harold Hill. Yeah. I wrote that down in all caps. I was like, really? And it's not an Anna Martin book. I know. I would assume that that tight, tight boomer reference came straight from Anne herself, but no, What's, it's ghost What is that a reference to? Emily, you have no associations with the name Her- Harold Hill at all. This is too old a reference for me or Anne either, but some, yeah. uh, should we, should we give her some hints? I'm not going to guess it. <laughs> yeah, I have your attention, please. Attention, please. I can deal with this trouble, friend, with a wave of my hand. This very hand. No? I don't know. It's a musical. <laughs> a character from a musical. He's the music man. He's a what? Oh, He's a what? He's a music man. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Sorry. I that. Emily only the knows top. characters from Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars, so. <laughs> yeah, so true. They're my favorite musicals. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that be, they should make those into a musical. Oh, I never God. watched that. <laughs> you know what? I have something to say that is probably an unpopular opinion, but musicals, I've, I like less than I once did. That's, that it, like, that's all. That was like the mildest declaration. That was like <laughs> such a confession. <laughs> Hear me? Blasphemy among my friends. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep, yep, yep. Anywho. And I saw the hills. There's the kids are Sarah and Norman Hill. 
and Norman is overweight. They don't say exactly how overweight, but they seem they say the, the word fat about uh, at least 500 times in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the B plot is basically Norman is kind of bullied by his sister and other kids in the school. His parents aren't very supportive. They want to send him to fat camp and like put up signs over the house about what not to eat and stuff like that. So of course the babysitters are like, this isn't right. What, how do we, what do we do to resolve this issue? (laughs) Um, How do we fix the hills? And also Also, what metaphor do the hills provide for our own current situation? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Classic. It's a classic (laughs) babysitter spot. (sighs) All right. Emily, what, what, what did you focus in on today? I mean, it's pretty horrible. Like the whole book is about fixing yourself outwardly. I mean, I don't know. It's interesting because Dawn comes to the resolution that she was fine just as she was, right? Marianne keeps saying, uh-huh. Logan likes me just as I am. You don't know Lewis yet. He doesn't know you yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the babysitters realize you shouldn't fix yourself to be with a boy. But I think that lesson doesn't apply evenly to the kid, right? Like the kid, the, the what they end on with the Hill family is they shouldn't like solely focus on his weight to the exclusion of other things because that's what is contributing to his weight gain. And so therefore, if you want to fix the weight gain, don't focus ex- exclusively on the weight because he'll be happier thus thinner Mm -hmm. um which is like such an old school i don't know like beauty is a moral virtue Mm -hmm. view it's Mm -hmm. like i mean it's literally ancient it is ancient right like Mm -hmm. i'm shocked to see it kind of just trotted out with no criticism in the 90s i think that's like you know Mary Wollstonecraft and Virginia Woolf, like early feminism 101. <laughs> um, right. But the early too, 90s is, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that, like, there's also been since then, right, a lot of really interesting kind of discourse on, um, you know, bodies and appearances and beauty standards and all this kind of stuff. And like fat is not a bad word, right? Fat's an identity that folks rock, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's like to see it, you know, peddled out as this real moral um, kind of scourge is, is pretty unsettling. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a book for children. For children. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. We're used to it. Speaking of magazines, we're used to it you know, scolding adult women on the pages of magazines. And that is also problematic, not saying like, as long as it stays there, it's fine. And there's a real, yeah, not just beauty equals virtue, but, you know, thinness equals health. Mm -hmm. Like no, no sign of health at every size in this book at all. Like clearly it's a problem. Yeah. 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 And then like, I mean, the, the metaphor of diabetes was just such a strange, I, I mean, I guess I appreciate Stacy's like 
okay, if this is something this kid is going to have to live with from his parents, like how can I provide him with some strategy or comfort to make that easier? Like maybe that's a reading of it, right? That she's like, look, I have to do this for my health and there's ways you can figure it out. And like, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think about maybe yeah. what someone could have been thinking by putting think this in there. She, I think Stacy was, uh, let's not pin this on Stacy because Norman is only seven. Um, no, for she, sure. Like, yeah. I think she was trying to be validating and she was trying to say, it's really hard not to eat things you really want to eat. Yeah. And you like, know? here's, here's how I deal with it. And mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, it's just, I, I just think it's like such a weird, the weird metaphor is a sort of kind of feeds into this idea that, that fat is sick or unwell. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Well, and it has this idea, like, it, you know, in 1992, before the advances in type one diabetes that we have seen since then, you know, we are, we are taught in the BSC universe that a, a hostess cupcake is literal poison to Stacy, right? Mm-hmm. Like it will land her in the hospital. It is poisonous for her. And so to have that exact parallel drawn to Norman, like a cupcake is not poison to Norman. It isn't. Yeah. And, and yeah. actually we have no data, no evidence that it is making him more unhealthy. We don't know that that's true at all. Um, and so that's, I think, the real danger in that, I don't know, equivalency. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking too about general like feminist debates over beauty, right? Like there's, I mean, the girls aren't talking about it in this way. They're talking about like the, that kind of old hat, be true to yourself thing we see a lot of in the BSC. But I think they're at least gesturing toward or skirting toward a a debate about like, what does it mean to care about how you look? Right. Is that, is that, is there something wrong with that? And if so, like what, on what grounds is that problematic? And there's a lot of interesting kind of feminist discourse on like, you know, I, I have this joke with some of my friends from grad school where we call when consuming something, gives you pleasure you're being like a lipstick Marxist <laughs> mm. right like I can mm-hmm. have a criticism of capitalism and um enjoy my 25 shades of lipstick that I have the the choices of right like mm-hmm. the, you, it's the dialectic right <laughs> mm-hmm. and so I think you know it would be cool to wrap the the old like be true to yourself mantra in a little bit of debate about like why they care about, you know, how they look. And I think, right, Don just equates appearance to appealing to being liked and then moves from like, oh no, I I was like, I am inside likable, right? And Mm -hmm. we don't really interrogate kind of the presumed relationship she has between those two things. Do you know what I mean? So like, which I think would be interesting for them to talk about, right? Like, why do I feel like, you know, does it matter how I look and why are we always like putting makeup on or whatever? I don't know. I think it's, I think they're like gesture toward that and then don't just fall back on the old lesson rather than like take it in a new direction, Mm -hmm. which I thought was, there was an opportunity for an opening for. Mm -hmm. I have a question. So just like, you know, I think that's interesting about thinking, am I doing this for myself or am I doing it for someone else? Right. And I think the lines get really blurred. Um, I do a lot of beauty work with beauty brands. Uh, and, you know, it's I've seen this trend of very, like girls in their 20s are now starting to exp- 
um, experiment with like Botox and fillers and like they're into like experimenting, changing their look and what, how they can like change their faces and stuff. And a lot of people say this is very feminist because like I am, this is what I want to do. And this makes me feel good about myself. And like, people can't tell me what to do with my body. If you know, no one, this is no one's business, but my own. Right. So there's like that argument, but then I'm also yeah, like, but, I mean, that's like old school, white liberal feminism, right? Yeah, like, it's very, <laughs> it's very prevalent in social media, that kind of opinion with young, with young women and men too. Um, and whenever I kind of say, well, if, if none of these things existed, then you wouldn't be doing them. You know, like this is people, I know people are making money off of you. Like, it's not that you want to do this. It's just like some, you think that you should be doing it a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, just it's being marketed to you. Right. Right. <laughs> as, as a like empowering kind of thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, it's younger women and obviously older women, you know, get a lot of work done. And is that like, it makes me feel good about myself and that's all that matters. Or is it dangerous? You know, it's interesting. So there's like a ton of different theories of like patriarchy and oppression uh, and beauty and appearance is a kind of central vector for these analyses, right? I mean, I've talked about Sheila Firestone on the podcast a lot, but she, in that book, um, The Dialectic of Sex that I always cite in that chapter on romance, she's like, look, one of the dynamics of patriarchy is that women get treated as objects and they like the thing that renders them all interchangeable is in, in a romantic context is what um, she comes to understand as the thing that makes her unique, right? This is the, the ro- romance um, dynamic, right? Like you're not like the other girls because you are so whatever, whatever, right? And that, and, but, but she's like, look, I'm not saying that there aren't beautiful things and that like, you know, just because society tells us what's beautiful and there are archetypes for these things does not mean that those things are not actually beautiful. Um, and I think that like her criticism of the, the way it gets deployed is that it flattens women to just that, right. That their moral, again, this kind of moral equivalency of, of beauty. But I think it gets complicated when you think about things like, you know, the notion of gender as a performance that can be changed. Right. And so that, that you can change your appearance to um, reflect a mode of being that you might not have been read as right at birth or something like that is seen as this kind of freeing up of, of us from the constraints of like a two sex um, system whereby, you know, everyone gets judged in, in by way of proximity to these like ideal archetypes, right? The, the masculine and the feminine. And so I think it's actually really complicated, right? I think the fact that there are people making a lot of money off of these things is like probably the the most important variable for, and like, you know, I think also how the press treats women who get these things done is a reflection of the kind of way that society views women and how we render still render women valuable vis-a-vis their appearance. But again, right. I think like the ability to affirm one's identity through changing of one's appearance is also um, a really valuable sort of asset. And and I think these things like stand in tension with one another and are like part of the same system uh, that regulates and, and polices 
um, gender and sexuality and, and identity like in our society. <laughs> That's really interesting when you, you bring in the identity affirming piece, because I, I love that you brought this up, Anne. And I think that, you know, I fall on one very far spectrum that like, it's, it's all just a, a plot to control women and it's garbage. Right. And like, it's about the context. And the only reason you want to make yourself look a certain way is because you're told by the patriarchy and by capitalism to make yourself look a certain way, which is, I think the argument that Anne is often the only person in the room trying to make at these like beauty pitch meetings that she tells me about. But I think what you're saying makes sense to me in terms of gender expression. But then are we saying that like my identity is a younger version of myself? <laughs> and so I'm like affirming that I still look 25, even if I'm 40. And that's that's who I am, because that's a whole other. No, no, layer. I'm just saying I think these two yeah. practices exist in the same like Space. vortex. <laughs> yeah, like vortex and, is and, a better I, word. <laughs> and I think it's like really complicated. And because there is an identity affirming component to the capacity to change your appearance. It makes it easier for companies to trot out like the ideal woman without um, like paying lip service to that, that tradition of ascribing moral worth to beauty and instead packaging it in this like language of freedom of expression and like self-determination. And so I think, I think like, I, I mean, I, I agree, right? I think that the reason sometimes I look in the mirror and I'm like, ugh, is not because that's what, you know, it's not because of some objective, uh, <laughs> but because of some social, uh, right? And like, and, and, and I believe that that is true of a lot of things, not just kind of like how we dress, but how we speak, yes. right? All of this stuff. And, and at the same time, right, we still have like, I don't know, we, we're still grappling with the kind of limits of, of I think that the two sex system and, the ability to change your appearance is part of like performing gender on a, on a kind of daily iterative sort of banal basis. And so like, I think play is cool, but I think being sold like a repackage repackaging this old, old, like beauty is good thing in the language of freedom of self-determination is probably pretty dangerous. <laughs> and I think undermines like, the identity affirming component of these technologies or whatever, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is right now the landscape of beauty is so like the spectrum is very wide in terms of like, you have a lot of beauty brands trying to be more authentic and like, you don't use the words wrinkle anymore. You don't use the words anti-aging. Like people, there are brands who are trying to actively get away from that kind of vocabulary and messaging and have it be more about just like health, health things. Like you want healthy skin, like you want to look the best you can, but that doesn't mean you should look different. But then on the other side, it's like all this crazy stuff. It's like, you know, the Kardashian influence of like Brazilian butt lifts and like 19 year olds like getting lip fillers and looking ridiculous so it's what like what are the things they wear the waist trainers yeah like, like the corset things yeah, yeah. and so it's like it's very interesting how both of those things are very loud at the same time right now and because the social media you just enter your little echo chamber and you just see what you want to see kind of right so I feel like uh, what they want you to see yeah, but <laughs> what you can, the social media company wants you to see. Yeah, but you can like advertisers. But you yeah. can choose to follow who you want to follow. You follow the kind of influencers you want to see. 
So some people might be seeing like, you know, women who don't shave and like they show pubic hair. And then on the other yeah, hand, like the you might gray see, movements. Yeah. Yeah. Or on the other side, you might see someone who's like tips for getting like, you know, a more cat eye by, by like putting threads underneath your skin and pulling your skin back. It's like all this exists at or the like, same time right yeah. now. It's for, so it's, I don't know if like one's going to eventually win out. It just seems like, everyone has their own definition of beauty, which is good, but it is all based in capitalism. It's like what product is going to appeal to someone right now and who's going to buy it. Well, and can we just also talk about wasting women's time? Because like, (laughs) honestly, because the vast majority of these things are employed by cisgender women. Mm -hmm. Um, And it takes so much time when, uh, you know, as someone who's pretty far on the other side and, you know, doesn't wear makeup and doesn't mess with that kind of stuff, I'm like, where would I even, how? Like, I just, mm-hmm. like, if I wanted to do those things, it's uh, like, I, that's not an accident, you mm-hmm. know, that then we're occupied with all of that and men have time to, yeah. you know, keep taking over the world. Well, like, recently on our trip to Mexico, we met this couple um, and, they were, they were very funny, but the guy was like 58. He like made his, his, he revealed his age at some point and his wife looked like 30 years younger than him, but she was also in her early, she was in her early fifties. Mm-hmm. And so you have this, like, she almost looked like his like daughter or something. But it was just so interesting. Like he had let himself gray and like have wrinkles and she was all yeah, tight. He looks distinguished. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, oh, geez. And they just talked about how much he was like, we do really well for ourselves. Like they were very into like, <laughs> they kept on talking about how much money they had. I went to the dentist <laughs> yesterday like, and the hygienist told me, um, she was like, oh, you need Invisalign. And I was like, I'm not getting Invisalign. I can't afford it. And then she was like, well, if you start getting, start listening for clenching, if you get TMJ, we can do Botox. You know, the dentist is the best person to get Botox. You can also get cosmetic Botox at the dentist. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks. They're like, why are you selling me Botox at the Botox. dentist? <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> yeah, <totally>. And Invisalign. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I'm going to stop getting my teeth cleaned. <laughs> I have to say no to so much, so many pu- pushed like products. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is depressing me. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I'm, I, I want to move on to something that's related and not less depressing. Sorry. But I uh-huh. just, it just strikes me. This, this book came out in January 92. Anne and I were literally 13. Like this is, yeah. like we were here at this moment in time. Time. And I think the other thing that's related to what you're talking about of beauty equals good, but is different is that the transition here is into thin equals health, yeah. which is slightly different from beauty equals good. And which was like the big message at this time. Right. And I can remember like, you know, Anne and I joke about it now, but like we had get in shape girl, which was like these audio cassettes of workout stuff. And it came with like a dancing ribbon and like a little set of weights and this was like a toy marketed to okay that was fun and your old girls <laughs> right but that was the thing is it's fun and but it's also like moral and good and this is also like the low fat big low fat era like snack wells cookies were huge um which can we and, talk about this because yeah. i was really into them but those I things really were, liked them too. those things were dry as fuck 
Like, I don't remember them as dry because they had that weird sort of like marshmallowy layer. Or do they still exist? Because I feel like we need to get a box. They went out of business, but maybe they started making them again. I don't know. Um, Maybe we'll send send you back the Malamars if you want. (laughs) No, those are good. They're not low fat. Anyway, I think that that, you know, so in that sense, this message is not surprising at this time because it was everywhere. And this idea that it's similar to what you're saying, Anne, about the beauty industry now, it's not about looking better. It's, you know, under this guise of it's for your health. And it's so that you can be healthy. And don't they even say somewhere in here, like, so that, don't they say something about Norman dying because he's too fat? I feel like there was some... I did not catch that. Okay, maybe not. But there was some, there was some pretty, you know, hard language from both parents and his sister, Sarah, about like what's going to happen to him um, if he continues in this direction. And so I just want to get, I have some other psychology stuff to talk about, but I want to get a shout out to the podcast maintenance phase if people are not already listening to it, um, which is hosted by Aubrey Gordon, who's on social media as your fat friend. And she's a fat activist. And um, maintenance phase is really, really fantastic because it talks a lot about the lack of data about any of these cultural beliefs we have. And basically, foremost above among them, diets don't work for 90% of people that use them. It's just, you know, we're mostly we're at a set point and there's lots of different sizes that people can be healthy at. And so they're all a lie. And but we do equate them with morality. And so then it ends up being this idea that shaming fat people is the way to quote unquote help them. Um, and shocker, turns out shaming people, not a good driver of behavior change more broadly, <laughs> we'll say, um, but especially Shame. not in this situation. Shame. Yeah. And <laughs> we can see that like full force with Norman, right? It's like all of these rules and regulations and looking down on him and being angry at him. And that was, you know, it, it unfortunately is, is still how we treat fat people in 2022. Um, so not a lot has changed in 30 years, but you can see, um, more kind of direct endorsement of it in this book. So if you like this podcast, you should listen to maintenance phase. It's not about the babysitters club and it's much better research. Um, but it will Rude. tell you a lot about these things. <laughs> okay. I'll say it's better research than the psychology. Anne and Emily both spend hours on their parts and have hours and hours I spend. <laughs> anyway, um, it's, it's very eye opening, and Aubrey Gordon's doing a lot of really um, great work and, it just, I just felt so sad for Norman because Seven is young. This is yeah, a book is fucked up. Writer. And like, I, I know they, you know, the BSC comes in and helps a little bit by the end in terms of his relationship and like reducing the shaming and the meanness coming at him. And the message is still that he has to lose weight mm-hmm. and that he's not going to be able to be like a functioning happy boy if he doesn't. And that's a really dangerous message because mm-hmm. lots of people can't do that. So, and they're also setting him up for a yikes, yikes eating disorder in his adolescence. So we can move on from all of the fat and beauty stuff. Two things that I thought were interesting psychology wise in this section. Uh, this one is slightly related to the beauty, but not only. I found really interesting the um, identity policing that the girls did about Dawn when mm, Dawn is trying being herself. To, yes. Yeah. <laughs> when Dawn is trying out these different things, which again, we don't like she's, that she's doing it for a boy and right at the direction of these teen magazines, but is a super normal part of adolescence, mm-hmm. right? She's a 13 year old. She's supposed to be figuring out 
who does Dawn, who's Dawn? What does Dawn look like? And, you know, she's an individual. So she can do it in a lot of different ways. And that's super, super normal. This is another Um, book where Claudia and Dawn are fighting. Dawn's like, Claudia's a bitch. She more than anyone. How how can she tell me not to dress? And you're not going to (laughs) bite? I mean, yeah, I don't know Claudia said. (laughs) Shock. (laughs) And you you can't tell me who my identity is, Anne. Don't they say in that in that scene they're like they didn't mind her changing her look, but they're saying she was acting different. Yes, that's true. They do differentiate it because yeah. she's also trying to be cool, right? Like she's like rude to a teacher, yeah. and she's and on, like, yeah, that was so she made a yeah. strip. That was so bad. <laughs> Like, okay. wait, what's her hilarious joke again? They she said, like, she pretends not to know what the Ignatius rock types are. And Ignatius? she says, huh? I forget like, what she, she says. She says like metal yes. or hard or something like that. Yes. Oh, she's just she heavy she metal talks about rock. rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. Oh, yeah. Hilarious joke. Yeah. yeah. So I just... It's really. Sorry, I have this habit of um, purposely mispronouncing science words that I developed in college because we had like science we had our friend group was split into teams it was science and then blah blah science blah was the other team and so we used to do this thing where we would like mispronounce all the science words and it's become such a force of habit to troll the science people it's just like ingrained in how I read science words now (laughs) (laughs) divestive system the the big one was aspartame or aspartame (laughs) (laughs) That was a, a regular feature in conversation. Okay, scary. Oh, <laughs> anyway, um, so that's just I, I thought that was I thought that was realistic. Um, and I also think it's interesting because I think friends you've known longer are more likely to do that. And I can remember this pressure of like not wanting to not act like myself in front of like Anne and our Because Anne was gonna be a bitch about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She'd be like, what? What are you wearing? Why are you doing that? Because um, Anne was gonna be like, you know what, it's not the overalls, it's the attitude. Exactly. Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. So it's just interesting, like, how do we, you know, so how do we mitigate that for teens? How do we normalize it with each other? And I, I'm curious, I think this generation might be doing a better job of it because there are so many more identity choices available to them. Um, but I think that's a, that's a real thing that, that this ghostwriter depicted or that Anne outlined. Yeah, um, like her, the, her two options are cool or casual. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Also, her makeover um, is just like, it's so hilarious. It's I had a hard time picturing the hairdos. Yeah. Well, when she it's, braided her hair, but only up, she undid it up to her chin. So it was like half braid. I was like, what? Yeah. No, I yeah. don't get it. No. It's, uh, yeah. No, it's disorganized. Um, that's the psychological term for how she was dressed. Yes. Yeah. Like you would put it in the mental status exam of like, yeah, totally. patient, if you're disorganized. Yeah. Um, so That's hilarious. Um, the last thing, um, there's a big focus on New Year's resolutions in this book. Um, and I'm always, I, I've been interested in New Year's resolutions because they are an indicate they're, they're a specific attempted behavior change. Right. Um, and so we don't like the particular one that Don chose. And um, it's something that people do 
like, you know, uh, and a large percentage, like 40 to 50% of U.S. adults make New Year's resolutions each year. Um, and so I wanted to see what the, um, what the data was like on New Year's resolutions. Um, and I found some like very, very old stuff and I found some sort of more new stuff. So bear with me for a second because I have a few different tabs open. Um, the most recent paper I found was from 2002. Um, and it, it, the title of it is Old Lang Syne, Success Predictors Change Processes and Self-Reported Outcomes of New Year's Resolvers and Non-Resolvers. So it's, not, it's not a particularly big study that ends about 300, but they called people between December 26th and December 31st on the phone randomly. This was in the late 90s and asked, like, do you make a New Year's resolution? And then they followed people up over time to see who kind of actually met, made their resolution and who didn't and what the differences no were between people that make resolutions, people that don't. Well, that's actually not true. Um, and actually, if you are a person that likes New Year's resolutions, you are more likely to make behavior change you plan to make in that year than if you say, oh, I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but I'm going to make some changes. So like declaring it actually makes you more likely to make that change. Um, and there were differences between resolvers and non-resolvers. And there were also differences between successful resolvers and unsuccessful resolvers on like things like the significant differences were in self-efficacy, both of making change and maintaining the change. The successful resolvers were significantly higher on that measure. And then on the readiness to change was the biggest difference. And they were much higher on that particular um, measure. But it was just interesting looking at like what makes it, what makes it happen. Um, and about, 16% of people had maintained their change six months later, but something like 30% of people had maintained it into March, which is higher than I would have thought actually. Um, are you, I, my, I know Anne hates New Year's resolutions. Are you also anti New Year's resolution, Emily? I am. Yes. Yeah. I figured as much. Yeah. Um, can you, do you guess what some of the most common New Year's resolutions are? Wait, exercise, get corner. a boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Join the gym. <laughs> yeah. Lose weight, exercise, eat better. Yeah, those are the most common yeah. ones. And I don't make those. Be I think a better person by being more healthy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be morally superior to my peers. <laughs> yeah, a.k.a. hotter. I'm going to pretend uh, I'm to social eat. beauty standards. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my nearest resolution is sorry. to trick myself into thinking I'm a di I have type 1 diabetes. <laughs> oh, God. Poor Norman. <laughs> We're going anyway, to hell. If you are a person that wants to stick to your New Year's resolutions, do you have some ideas of how you would actually make that happen? Um, let would, me guess. Is there an acronym? <laughs> <laughs> I think you need to be specific, uh, measurable, <laughs> achievable, realistic, and, and time-bound. <laughs> wow, that's that's so smart. So smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you guys not heard of smart goals before? It's like a corporate thing too, but it started no. as a psychology. Ugh. Yeah. No. Um, but it also makes sense, right? If people, if your goal is be healthier, like how can you possibly... Like, what does that even mean? Right? It means but if pretend your goal you is have like, diabetes. Right? <laughs> Stop it. It means lower your resting heart rate. <laughs> but if your Raise goal it? is exercise on Mondays with my neighbor, Louisa, 
you know, or if your goal is that is very have, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and time bound. Yeah, exactly. Or if, you're, if it's like do meatless Mondays and eat more vegetables on the weekends, like, I, you know, there's ways to to do these things that are more realistic and that you're more likely to stick with. Right. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of friends who do like a dry January. Yeah, a lot of people Every do year. that. A lot of people yeah. do that whole whole thirty diet too, mm. which I yeah. I hate that diet. Everyone's like, I'm doing the whole thirty. I'm like, I hate all diets. <laughs> I'm like, all just, garbage. Just be normal. That's a whole separate like biohacking, like self-challenge thing. I think that's different than a New Year's resolution. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because that's mm-hmm. a like, it's more like a quote unquote a cleanse, which doesn't actually cleanse anything or like, right. you know, it's like a different thing. Anyway, I thought it was interesting and it's not surprising to me that like psychologists and social scientists have been interested in New Year's resolutions for a long time. Um, Some of the old stuff I found was pretty funny. Um, I found an article about trends in children's New Year's resolutions from 1957, (laughs) where they interviewed 228 sixth graders. Um, Girls made more resolutions than boys. Shocker. Um, And then they had resolutions about family, siblings, and patriotism. Um, so I thought that was funny. I couldn't get the full text of the article, but Rose Zellig in 1957 wrote that. And then I found a little, um, clip from the New York times from 1930, where there was a contest for New Year's and New Year intentions. And a 12 year old girl named Olive Irene Bull won the contest for having the best New Year's resolution. And it was, well, do you guys want to guess what it was? Or you want me to just read it to you? How old is she? Get She's a Brazilian 12? butt lift. <laughs> 12 in yeah. 1930. Learn to tap dance. Oh, I wish it was that. Oh, is it dark? It's not dark. Okay. Well, it depends on your definition of dark, actually, but I don't think it's obviously dark. I'm not going to guess. It? I don't know. I will do my very best to attend Sunday school every Sunday and help in any way I am needed in church, Sunday school, or at home. I will do what I can to help others and I will thank God for letting me live in this beautiful world. This is terrible. That's like the darkest timeline. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Olive Bull. May she rest in peace. I'm assuming she's not with us anymore, but I guess she could be. Do you think she went to heaven or hell? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And take us out of here. <laughs> Yeah, did she keep up with her New Year's resolution? I wonder what happened. I don't to know. Her. It, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like it was a smart goal, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that seems really not specific, immeasurable, yeah. unachievable, unrealistic, and not time bound. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, probably not. Probably by the end of the year, she was smoking c- cigarettes um, um, outside the back of the mm-hmm. Sunday school. I'm very mm-hmm. intrigued by the notes in Anne's corner. <laughs> yeah, what's up, Anne? Well, before I get to my little nuggets, um, I just want to call out some things that I noted in the book. Uh, One was Claudia has a new crush on Arthur Feingold. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) Um, That Marianne resolved to be less shy for Logan. Yeah. (laughs) Dumb. That's very lame. Um, uh, Norman's mom put out a can of tuna for dinner. 
Yeah, fucked up. That was bleak. Dark. Was like, Dark. That was really bad. That was really bad. So gross. Let's see. Don's letter to Lewis post makeover was so bad. <laughs> Dear Lewis, I wrote, dying to see you Friday night. Marianne said you have an extremely honky voice. Can't wait to hear it whisper in my ear. Until then, Ew. Don. What? Why did you read that? Ugh. <laughs> I'm quitting this podcast. <laughs> Um, okay, so there's a mention of Mr. Clean because they mm-hmm. said uh, Mr. Harold here, Hill, Mr. Harold here look like Mr. Clean. So I know Esme knows who Mr. Clean is. Does Emily? Like, are you asking if I know who Mr. Clean is? Yeah. Yeah, I know who Mr. Clean is. We'll say it then. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the okay, bald so Mr. guy? Yeah, the bald, the bald cleaning guy, right? So... I was like, oh, I was like, was it is it based on a show or something I've never seen? Like, is this a trick question? <laughs> it's like Mr. Show, but Mr. Clean. Yeah. Um, okay, so I did. I was just interested in the the backstory, of Mr. Clean. Um, so it was invented by an advertising agency in 1957, mm. um, and someone there kind of sketched out Mr. Clean as a muscular, tan, bald man which they didn't give, really give a backstory as to why they want it to be a muscular tan bald man, but that's just the way it goes. So clean is hot. Yes. Yeah, clean is hot. He's, he's tough on dirt. He's so tough he has on to be dirt. Strong. Um, according to Procter and Gamble, who owns Mr. Clean, um, the original model for Mr. Clean was a United States Navy sailor from Pensacola, Florida. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but then he also kind of got morphed into a genie. Remember that? But it's inconclusive if he is a man or a genie. (laughs) (laughs) Inconclusive. I couldn't find any hard facts about it, okay? I love, like, there's been a study. (laughs) What? Yeah, I just did a study, like, 45 minutes ago. Um, The data was inconclusive. Yeah. So today there's a there's a new origin story of Mr. Clean that's on their website, which is ridiculous. So <laughs> the origin story is now Mr. Clean was an orphan baby found on the on the doorstep of a farmer. And the farmer was like, this is the cutest, cleanest baby I've ever seen. <laughs> and what? Yeah, I'm gonna let me actually read it for you. It says he was the cutest, cleanest baby the farmer and his wife had ever seen, and so they decided to adopt the little guy as their own. Mr. Clean's parents are hardworking folk who live by the motto, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And it's with that work ethic and his natural love for cleaning that Mr. Clean set out across the globe on a mission to become the best, toughest, hardest working cleaner in history. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. After years of research, Mr. Clean finally wrote the Encleanopedia, a chronicle of his adventures and everything he'd learned about cleaning. They, that book eventually found its way into the hands of a company called Procter & Gamble, who knew they found the man who would change the way people clean forever. Okay. Weird. someone, Someone... Wrote this and approved it, and it's on the website. Now. Right, this is the kind of thing that you would get hired to write, but exactly. yours would not. Yours would, would not be this bad. It would not be that bad. Um, 
So the man who illustrated Mr. Clean also painted, was hired to paint all the Smokey Bear paintings, which is interesting, oh. I feel. Oh. Also, it's Smokey Bear, not Smokey the Bear, which I learned. Mm. Um, oh. Yeah. Mr. Clean is also the longest running advertising jingle used in television history. The jingle? Yeah. How does the jingle go? <clears throat> I have the lyrics here. Hang on. So it goes, I'll just do, it's actually on YouTube. There's like, it's like a really long song, but I'll just do. Okay. Do the hook. Okay. Mr. Clean gets tough on dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and every room that's in it. Floors, doors, walls, halls. He's so tough, he cleans them all. Grimy tubs and towels will do. So your bathroom looks clean as new. Wow. Are we going to get sued? No. <laughs> <laughs> never heard that before. Really? Like haven't I heard that? I've never heard that. No. Really? Um, no. I know. Interesting, I, like I know a jingle. Yeah. Is the composer of that jingle also wrote the Alka-Seltzer jingle. Mm. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a leaf right. it is. You yeah. know that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Intriguing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> um... Let's I'm over see. Mr. Clean. <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, I guess if you're not into commercial jingles, that isn't, that's not as interesting to you as it is to me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> correct. Um, okay, also on page, let's see. On page 11, Marion mentions how Logan has to look at the movie timetable <laughs> to see... Mm-hmm. So what good. movie they're gonna see, which ends mm-hmm. up being Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Yeah. Weird which is choice. First, that's definitely not in a theater. Like, well, they have revivals. Yeah, but come on. It's like, oh, it just happens to be playing. Uh, but I looked at the real box office releases for December 1991 and January 1992. Mm. To see realistically maybe what they would have what, what they could have chosen if they were would have gone to see. So yeah. if you want me to go by December 91 or January 92. They're only a little bit different. Mm. They saw it in January. I feel like it's yeah, January. It's, okay. yeah, yeah. So we got oh, there's a lot of them. Okay. Number one movie, Hook. Oh, they totally would have seen Hook. Yeah. 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 Uh, Prince of Tides, Father of the Bride. Oh, okay. Beauty and the Beast. Prince. Oh. Mm. I'm just naming movies that they might want to see. My yeah. Girl, The Addams oh. Family, uh, American Tale, Five Will Goes West. <laughs> I mean, that's the one. <laughs> ding, ding. Um, but those are the ones that I think that they would probably see. I think it's I down to like My Girl or Hook. Hook, yeah. Hook. Well, I think Marianne would want to see My Girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But My Girl or Hook, I feel, or would be the ones instead of hooking yeah. Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Um, Mike and I, yeah, Mike and I say Hook is like our generational divide. <laughs> That's funny. He's like, he's we like, watched that movie a lot as, ki- as yeah, kids. He's like, like, a lot. He's like yeah. I love that movie Hook. And I was like, eh. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I was like 13 when it came out. And he was like, oh, yeah. I was, yeah, he was yeah. like, oh, yeah, I was eight. And I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's our generational divide. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Oh, boy. Okay. I am surprised what we need to talk about. This goes into the candy. And, but um, 
there are a couple uh, like the food in this book is wild yeah mm-hmm. soybean wild, pie wild yeah so I'll Gross. let you say what you wanted to call out first Dan but I got some things to say well I think what stood out to me is just like Dawn is such a pill about health food <laughs> like come on it's like just eat some pizza <laughs> pizza isn't yeah. really unhealthy <laughs> right I don't it, like why is she yeah. such I don't know she's so militant about it and it really bothers me yeah I think there's a difference between like not wanting to eat candy at every meeting and like I, I feel like she's more judgmental of other people's food choices in this book than she mm. typically is as she usually is um, yeah and I don't know if that's because it's ghostwritten or what I feel like ordinarily she wears it as a kind of badge of her individuality right mm-hmm. and in this book it's she's kind of like la, la, yeah. la, which i think goes in line with the like thin is good yeah. is health um totally. kind of mantra that this book just hammers in every yeah moment i i thought the scene with lewis where she's like getting him to eat a mediterranean plate was just was that was more legitimately just sharing something that she likes that's a great flirt yeah <laughs> but the rest of it was bonkers like yeah tofu apple nut loaf you guys yes. what is that yeah, yeah. No, i and actually got the chills when you said that <laughs> 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 there's soybean pie and then there's also also what does Dawn do for the very first time in this book, in her life? I missed that. She chews a piece of gum for oh, the oh, first time. Yeah, that's in funny. In chapter seven, when she's trying to be like a new, uh, a cool kid. And is Mal has to teach her how to blow a bubble. Gum. Yes. Yeah. Was there even any candy in this book at all? There wasn't. There is the popcorn were- tin. Yes, the popcorn tin mm. was a welcome addition. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, classic, the, the classic fi- fixture at our yes, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas game nights. I, yeah, I associate popcorn tin with with game boards at Esme's house on the day after. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty yeah, <much>. for sure. <laughs> then it was the classic tricolor, perfect. The other thing I thought was really classic is they got sparkling apple cider for New Year's Eve, which is like totally what we did as children. You got to have your Martinelli's. Um, but yeah, the, to- the, the, the stuff was wild. And then they got to eat at Cabbages and Kings again. So, so funny. Wow, I can't believe there's no candy. Don sucks. Tallies, though. I have some good news on tallies, you guys. We have four individuals, one bossy, one sensitive, one shy. No almond-shaped eyes. Claudia is not exotic. This is the wow. first book that has neither. Is it a turning That's point? Claudia is just a bee. That's why. Yeah. She's, doesn't, we don't need to talk about how Japanese she is. She's just a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is this a turning point? As we, is 1992? As we have AAPI months, I would, I would, yeah. you know, can you keep it, you know, tone it down a little? Um, Were you going to say keep it in your pants? <laughs> no. <laughs> The question is, is 1992 the turning point? Do we go forward and we don't have these words anymore? Or is Suzanne Wayne just less racist than Anne and the other ghostwriters? And it's going to come back in 51. We'll see. We shall find out. This is a cliffhanger. Yeah. What do y'all want to piece of this to? Oh, wait. No, sorry. I jumped ahead. Go ahead, Anne. Oh, it's weirdest line time. All the names were so weird. (laughs) 
but I don't think we can use someone's name as an episode title. <laughs> I, I have, I, I picked up one phrase. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, horns of a dilemma. Oh yeah. That's a oh, good one. That's a classic. Yeah. I wrote, um, you directed conversation, which is what Dawn's learning how to do from the teen mag books. That's very good too. Very funny. Yeah. Um, and then this is a quote that is too long for an episode title, but I just really loved that Don's observation was that cool kids just go ahead and do what they want to do. Um, I used to say that to my mom all the time. I don't know. I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph still says it. <laughs> I'm M dog. I do what I want. That's what he says. M dog. Um, yeah. That's what, <laughs> that's what people used to call me. <laughs> <laughs> On the basketball team. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Way to go, I think, Yeah, I think mm-hmm. "Horns of a Dilemma" is a good uh, fit for this book. Fair enough. Yeah, it goes well with Don's the title. Big date. "Horns yeah. of a Dilemma." Uh, I don't know what other thoughts, objections. Yeah, great. I'm into it. Fine with me. Yep. Beaut. So, what do we want a pizza toast to? There's not a lot worth toasting in this book. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, We could pizza toast to Cam Gary's singing career. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. When you both said that at the same time, I was going to say, wait, I bet you're going to say the same thing. That was weird. (laughs) Yeah. I watched it happen. (laughs) Cam Gary's album comes out. Yeah. Cam Cam Gary sings. Trying to get Kid Kit to record a version, but I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so yeah. yeah Cam, Gary's, Cam Gary's I'm singing down. career. All right. Pizza toast to Cam Gary's singing career. Pizza to Cam Gary singing. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Salar Khan. You can find her work and hire her at propodcastediting.net. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. You can also join us on Patreon for bonus content at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuckinstonybrook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. <laughs>